is it is pretty frequently a pigeon or Mr. and Mrs. Welch and their entourage. The Holy Cross kids worship. Hey, this is, like I said before, this is your first time here at Holy Cross, and maybe you've got a kid in that three to pre-K range, and you think, hey, this might work for us. If you can just head back there with them and kind of help help uh, our volunteer get to know your child a little bit as they hang around here, help the kid, help help uh, help us too. That would be great. Uh, I promise you won't miss much. Um, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to the Book of Romans. That's in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. If you don't have a Bible, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some on that back table back there. We'd love to give to you. East Coast, remember this? Remember? There's volume. Yeah. For those of you who have been in Midtown, Holy Cross East, the room is just
God's word, believe it or not, given for our flourishing and Lord, um, right now, because this just happened on all of our devices, we want to pray for this child that's gone missing. We ask that you would be gracious and merciful uh, and find uh, this kid. That you would aid those that are searching and that this would be brought to a swift conclusion and a good conclusion. Uh, and Lord, as we come now and in this time, we ask just as we've read that verse, there's parts of us that want to push that away and push that down. So we need you to come in and to, to actually uh, work in our hearts to make us not only open, but desirous of you. Whether we're a Christian or not, we need that. So we ask you to do that. We ask you to Jesus.
And what I mean by that is that they are not silly. They are not kind of like those silly people out there with their silly thoughts about, uh, about God. They are real, sincere questions. And if you have them, maybe, even, maybe you just start coming the last six weeks and, and you recognize, like, Rick, you've been speaking a lot of things I'm thinking. Um, I want you to know that this is a safe place for you to both voice those questions and to bring them. We're not, we're not threatened by the reality of questions. Okay. But the first of these was the issue of God, right? We, we talked about the fact that in, in our first week, back the, the weekend after Labor Day, we, we talked about the fact that many people leave the faith because they've been disappointed with God. Maybe that's you. But the reality that we spoke to is that the God that many people have been disappointed in doesn't actually exist. Like that God isn't real. If you believe that God is a dude who's supposed to keep you safe all the time, or the guy who if you work really hard for is supposed to give you what you really want, or that God is someone who uses guilt to bring you into line, that's not the God of the Bible. That's a God that you and I make up. We like to make up gods. It's kind of what we do. It's what we do as humans. It's easier than engaging in the one who's real. The God of the Bible is a God who seeks to be reconciled to those who hate, who hate him, who rescues the weak and ungodly. So the challenge was, maybe you remember this, if you're going to reject God, make sure you reject the right one. Right? Make sure you reject the right one. The second that we dealt with was the issue of the Bible. And here we, we talk about two general problems that we have with the Bible. One is an historical problem, the other is a cultural problem. Right? Remember that? The historical problem being uh, the, the, the fact that we, we struggle with some of the more fantastical features of the Bible. But we, because we go, hey, that can't really happen scientifically, that's not possible. And then we, we had to wrestle with the fact that historical knowledge and scientific knowledge are two different things. Right? Historical knowledge is based on evidence, uh, testimony, things like that. Uh, scientific knowledge is something you Recreate by controlling all the variables so that you can predict the future. Historical knowledge is specifically like figure out what happened. The fact that the things that happened are incredible doesn't necessarily rule them out unless our assumptions are already made up, right? And unassailable in our minds. X cannot possibly happen. Well, how do you know? Because I have decided X cannot possibly happen. So you're going to have to figure out some other way to talk about it. So then if we have closed our minds to the possibility of anything outside of our own experience, we can simply pull those things out. But then we also notice how, how uh, Jesus helps us actually engage in uh, interpretation of the Bible, because he shows us that the whole thing is actually about him. It's not about rules, it's not about just stories of people to emulate, it's actually focusing in on him and our need for what he came to do. And then we move from there to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, because the resurrection of Jesus is both one of the most uh, argued about facets of the Christian faith, but it is also essential, it is absolutely central. And the New Testament presents this event as history, not fantasy. It actually challenges those who originally read the Bible to fact check it. Maybe, maybe that's new, maybe you haven't heard that. It's, it's, in, in, it's actually the case. And so the resurrection is the central event of Christianity. Everything rises or falls on that. And this is way different than other religions, right? Because in other religions, it doesn't matter so much what the founder did so much as what he or she said. 
It's about what they taught, not what they did. And, but ultimately, uh, in Christianity, it teaches us that we can't make ourselves better. And so no amount of teaching is actually going to help us. We need to be rescued, and that's where Jesus comes in. And then we look at the issue of suffering and evil. Right? Yeah, the, the problem of suffering and evil didn't seek to necessarily answer the problem, but maybe just kind of reframe it. Because in the West, this is an issue because of our assumption. Our assumption that if God is good and powerful, then evil and suffering should not exist. That's an assumption. It's not a self-evident truth. It's an assumption. And thus, since it does, since evil and suffering does exist, then God must be either one or the other, right? Either good or powerful, or he just doesn't exist at all. We talked about that. And a lot of that comes from the assumption on our part that if we can't see how something actually has meaning, then it doesn't have meaning. Right? Which is probably more arrogance than we really want to admit, but that's, that's the case. As well as the assumption that an all-powerful being would keep himself from suffering. That, that's one of the reasons why we get angry at God when we suffer, because we think, you don't ever have to deal with this. And if I were powerful like you, I would have to deal with this. And suffering makes us feel weak. But then we engage with the God of the Bible who actually decides to enter into our suffering and bear it for Jesus. He chooses to do that as well. And then lastly, we looked at the accusation uh, that all Christians are hypocrites, right? Can't go to the church. Full hypocrites. Most famous of the reasons that people give for not wanting to consider Christianity. And it's famous because it is often true. But what we know is that, on the one hand, hypocrisy isn't a Christian problem. It's a human problem. So to say that there are hypocrites in the church is just to say that there are humans in the church. And so, of course, there are. But on the other hand, that Christianity is actually the only thing that can free us from the strength of universal drive and present one front to the other, while hiding what's actually true of us. And it does this by exposing those things that we hide calling them what they are, and then saying that Jesus, God, has loved us and provided for us. Not just in spite of but because of us. Okay. Now, hopefully that's a pretty good summary of where we've been. And those, I, I think those questions do actually lead to some disturbing conclusions. There's a danger in talking about this. The danger is simply that it can seem, when I say that this leads to some disturbing conclusions, that this is a big gotcha session, Right? And you know what the gotcha moment is, right? Because we love that kind of culture today, where we kind of set someone up and kind of get everything in the right place, and then we get, ha, gotcha. And we get, like, it's a quote that they pulled or something like that. We love it. Our political shows love it. They do it all the time. I, I cannot stand it. That's not what this is. What I mean by disturbing conclusions is simply that you and I often find little snippets that resonate with us. And then we clean them without a bunch of reflection. Which is not to say that these objections we've dealt with aren't real. They're very real. But they often say more than we hope they say. For instance, like I said, saying there are hypocrites in the church really says nothing more than there are humans in the church. And the gospel is the only thing that allows us to be authentic while also being confident in our acceptance. So, to say that there, I can't go to church because there are hypocrites there, well, you can't go to, well, I don't know, Kroger, right? There, there's hypocrites everywhere. 
And that the gospel is actually the only thing that helps us to leave our hypocrisy at the door. Do we do it perfectly well? No, we do not. But it's an answer. To deny God because of injustice actually undercuts the entire idea of justice, right? Remember me talking about that? So that, in fact, if we, if we cut out justice, or if we cut out God as an ultimate person giving value to action, all you have is you have my justice and your justice, no justice at all. Right? We have no reason to be outraged about anything. To claim that the Bible is regressive because of some teachings in it is to claim that your culture is the culture by which all cultures of all time should be judged. Because obviously, you are progressive and everyone else is regressive. Do we want to say that? No. See, the ironic thing is that many claim that the teaching of the Bible are narrow-minded and yet have a very narrow definition of what broad-mindedness is. Right? Broad-mindedness only really has to do with probably our sexuality and what we do with substances. Narrow-mindedness means you have to talk about those two things. To claim that you can't believe in a God who didn't keep you safe from suffering when the God presented the Bible actually chose to enter into suffering and pain unjustly to rescue you claims, quite frankly, we know better than he does about how powerful he is and that you would need as well. See what I'm talking about? See, we tend to think Christianity is disturbing. And it is. Christianity is very disturbing. But the alternative isn't less disturbing. Sometimes it's more so. So if that is the case, why is it that we still struggle to believe? The Bible would argue that we still struggle to believe because it's not so much an issue of what we know. It's an issue of what we want. So let's look at that. Okay, let's look at reasons for the heart. The verse we're looking at this morning, uh, Romans 1.18, actually is the verse that comes immediately before the passage we did the first week of this series. Which makes it really appropriate to kind of return to this as a way to conclude things. So let me set it up for you really quick. I've talked about the, the Apostle Paul a lot in this series. Paul was a, was a violent oppressor of Christians. Okay? That, that's how we're introduced to him. He violently oppressed Christians, murdered them, took them off to jail, did whatever he could to stop the Christian faith. Until he had an encounter with the risen Jesus that completely flipped the script around. And he's writing this letter to the Roman church that he's never been to, he's never experienced, he didn't start it. But what he wants to do is he wants to see the gospel, the central message of Christianity, he wants to see Christianity spread to the western part of the Roman Empire. And the best way to do that is to go through Rome, have them support him, read money, give him the ability to go and do that because he relies on the support of other Christians. And so he wants to be what begins his presentation. Here's what I preach. Okay? Most of what came before this is simply introduction, readings, and such like that. So he begins, he writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godliness and righteousness of men, who by their righteousness suppress the truth. Now, what I want us to focus on is at the end, but everything at the beginning of that verse is going to conspire to distract you from what I'm about to say. Because that sounds like it should be said by someone 
in a, in a cheap suit who's sweating a lot, dabbing his forehead, and frothing at the mouth and pounding the pulpit, right? The ungodliness and the righteousness of men. Right. Well, I get it, okay? I get it. These are all things that are important. Uh, and I, I would love to be able to talk about them more, but the key for what we're talking about this morning is this notion of suppressing the truth. What Paul is trying to get across here, that word suppressing in the original, because the Bible is written, the New Testament is written in Greek, uh, not in English, King James or otherwise. It was written in Greek. And, and uh, that word that we translate suppressing is a violent word. It means laying hold of something, taking it, kind of pushing it down, doing violence to it. And so what Paul is talking about is that humanity, you and I, actively sometimes even, at least up here, violently suppress the truth. Now, some of you are probably thinking, like, what are you talking about? I don't suppress any truth. I, don't, I, I accept things that are true when they come to me. I'll get to that in a second. What I want us to see here is that Christianity understands that every person in the world, left to themselves, actively seeks to suppress the truth about God that is either present in creation or that is presented to One of my favorite passages in the Bible 
the Gospel of Matthew, right? So in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uh, has died, he's risen from the dead, he's going to ascend, which is, means he's going bodily to go reign in heaven, take his throne in heaven. And what happens right before that is he's, he's gathered with all of his disciples, and it says that his disciples gathered with him, and they worshipped him, but some doubted.
But it doesn't. And if it were the case that it's all in the head, then all of the smart, smartest people in the world, if Christianity is true, would obviously believe that it's true. Let me give you some thoughts as we ask the question, what is it that you desire? Maybe those thoughts will resonate. My guess is that if we're honest about what we desire, we want God to be like those false images of God we talk about because in the deep, in, that, in those dark places, Jack Nicholson said, those places you don't talk about in corners, like those places, we feel vulnerable in the world. It is bigger than us. Circumstances happen that we cannot control, and the one thing we want to be able to do more than anything else is to get a measure of control. We don't want to feel weak. And so if God can be bargaining with, if I can do X and get him to do Y, then I'm in control. Right? If I can do that, then, then I'm in control. You probably want the Bible to be up for grabs because the Bible exposes things about you. It exposes things about me that are really uncomfortable. And it asks us to change in ways that we don't want to. And frankly, it's easier to discredit the source than it is to engage in the criticism of my guess is that we question the resurrection not so much because it's amazing that a dead dude got up, but because we know that if he did, we can't live in rebellion in him anymore. If that dude got up, then death can't even hold him. If death can't hold him, I'm sure can. My guess is that we deny God because of pain, because it's easier than trusting that his heart is good towards us. And my guess is that we struggle with hypocrisy because you and I, on a level that maybe we don't want to talk about all the time, don't believe that we can be both fully known and fully loved. We just don't believe it. These aren't little wants. They are deep desires that go to the core of who you are, the core of who I am. They may come out differently, right? Those things eat themselves out of our hearts differently. But these longings are what drive us. And we don't believe, not just intellectually, but at a heart level, that Jesus is enough to answer those longings. This is what drives all of our unbelief, whether you are a Christian or not. And some of you are like, Christians have unbelief? Yes! That's why we do the things that we know we shouldn't do. Because we don't believe that Jesus is enough for us. But listen, let, let me, that, that only exposes some things. Let me speak of how these desires can actually be fulfilled. Like, I often say that if you don't believe in Christian, that Christianity is true, and I'm not the only one who says this, I didn't make this up. If you don't believe that Christianity is true, you should want it. You should really want it. Here's why. The gospel actually speaks to all of these longings that I mentioned. Right? In the gospel, we are told the truth. That, that God did create us. That, that the world has meaning. And if the world has meaning, so do we. It tells us that we have broken relationship with this God. And that we are broken ourselves and unable to rescue ourselves. Because we are accountable to Him. 
Those of us who don't believe in God, we actually live as if there was one. Because we have very high standards right now. Right? They're different from religious people, but we have very high standards. This is what's good, and this is what's not. Now, who says so? I don't know. We live as if there's a God, but we don't believe in it. Those of us who do believe in God live every day as if there were Because we say, I'm going to give you what I want. I'll really think about it. It's not really that important to me. We're conflicted creatures. The gospel provides friends not just an answer for this, but an explanation. It gives us not just an explanation, but it gives us a hope. You see, many people I've shared the gospel with will say to me at some point, it just seems too good to be true. But what I think, what I think we really need is that it speaks too deeply to what I desire to be there for. What if I'm disappointed? Maybe. I've spent the last six weeks though hopefully showing that faith is not blind. That there are firm grounds for what Christians believe, but in the end, like in any other relationship, you have to be willing to trust. You have to be willing. Because I tell this to, I tell this to couples that I'm counseling all the time, trust is not firm. It is a gift. Are there foolish people that give that gift to you? Yes, there are. Are there wise people to give that gift to? Yes, there are. How many times do we prove to you to believe that God is a wise person to give the gift of trust to So whether you're a Christian struggling to believe God can actually satisfy you, or you're a nun who has given up on God completely, can I ask you, will you reconsider? I can tell you boldly that I truly believe that Jesus and his gospel are the only thing that can give you what you really want. It asks for all that you are, but it gives you everything you dare for. It's worth reconsidering. Would you pray for Lord, over the last uh, six weeks, we have entered into a time of reconsideration. Some of us who have been thinking that we are full-out followers of Jesus have been surprised to learn that there are desperate areas where we need to change. Doubts that we have that we dare not speak. We've met us there. Others of us have seen that we're not actually followers of Jesus at all. Maybe we thought we were, but we learned we're not. And some of us came in knowing we weren't, and maybe we're reconsidering. I, I pray that you would meet us where we are and that you would use, look, Jesus, you know that nothing I have said can change anyone's mind. You alone know the agent of change. By your spirit, you are the one who makes hearts new, makes us willing to believe. And so, Lord, we can make us willing. Make us willing to believe. Not just for belief's sake.